All right, guys, you can go ahead and uh, find your seats. <clears throat> the scripture reading this evening comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so, I've already been telling us, but I uh, want to start off by asking this question. How do you feel about people in positions of power? How do you feel about people in positions of authority? I know for me, I kind of uh, immediately want to go to, um, I guess I'll call it a rebellious place, but, you know, just say no to the man and, and fight the power and that kind of thing. And I think I feel that way because so often people that have power, I rarely in my experience have had a good relationship, a good experience with those with power. I really do think it's a biblical idea going all the way back to Genesis 3, but when one gets power, they tend to abuse it. We see this all throughout Scripture. I was just talking with a friend this week, uh, and a friend told me a story about work uh, and how at work, my friend had worked with another man for a while. My friend had even helped train this guy and kind of show him the ropes at the job that they were in and uh, helped prepare him uh, to be better at the work that they were in. And then uh, through some maneuverings and whatnot, uh, the man that was trained ended up being promoted. Now, when he was just one of the guys, you know, he more or less got along with everybody. He was more or less kind and jovial and joking around. And then as soon as he was promoted, my friend shared with me that his voice dropped an octave, uh, meaning, you know, now he had to get deep voice so that, you know, you will respect me and listen to me. Uh, again, he was one of the guys, he was a friend, but then he was given power and then immediately felt like he needed to abuse this power. He needed to use this power to lord it over his other friends. And it just became uncomfortable for everybody. 
Have you ever experienced something like this? Have you ever had a relationship with somebody in power that it just seems that they just want to use it and abuse it, and they're not kind, and they're cruel, and you kind of wonder, why do they have power in the first place? In almost every fictional story, uh, that is the person. You know, if you want to learn something about leadership, don't be the guy who abuses power. But what, what about yourself? Uh, do you have power? And if you're the one that finds themselves in a position of authority, how do you treat those who are below you? Are you yourself kind to of them? Do you care for them? And then finally, do you desire power? And if you desire power for what? Do you want power in order to be able to uh, get revenge? Do you want power in order to be able to stick it to the man who was once cruel and mean to you? Can you see how convoluted in, in relationships, in business meetings, and we can go through all the different realms of life, but power can easily be abused. We're moving on in the text. For the last couple of weeks and really even months, we've been following Jesus's final teachings before he would eventually go to his arrest, betrayal, and crucifixion. And here we are. We're in the last uh, moments. We're in the last hours of Jesus's life. And here in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14, I think we see one of, uh, in my opinion, and that's all it is, my opinion, one of the most grandiose, one of the most uh, exceptional displays of Jesus's power. And what we learn from this display of power is this. Jesus always uses his power for good. Jesus always uses his power for good. And so, in this text, there's a lot of characters, and a lot of the characters, they don't use their power for good. In fact, they abuse their power. And so, the first thing that we're going to look at uh, is the abuse of power, and the second thing we're going to look at is the proper use of power. The abuse of power and the proper use of power. So, to this first point, uh, the abuse of power, there's at least four characters here in John chapter 18, that exactly what we've just described. We think of somebody in power, and we think of somebody uh, misusing the power that they've been given. There's at least four characters that go through and do this. So I'm going to kind of name them off, and for some of them we're going to speculate, you know, what is their motive for abusing the power that they have? So first person, most obvious, Judas. Uh, we can go back to John chapter 13. We can go back, but Jesus has been talking for a while now. One of you is going to betray me. Uh, and eventually Jesus, uh, Judas departs from the presence of Jesus and the disciples. And now the moment has come where Judas is actually going and betraying Jesus. Now, for the most part, we don't get a whole lot of explanation on what exactly is going on in Judas's heart. Why does he betray Jesus? But a few different times in a few different places, uh, what Scripture does offer us, what Scripture does tell us, his motivation for wanting more power, his, want, his motivation for wanting more, period, is money. And doesn't Jesus say that time and time again? The love of money, not, not money in general, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And so we see that Judas, he betrays his Lord. Judas betrays Jesus, as Matthew chapter 26 tells us, for 30 pieces of silver. 
Judas desired power. Judas abused the power that he was given, the influence that he was given, to have more gain, specifically to get more money. Judas is one of the characters that abuse their power. But another character, and this is maybe more of a, a community of characters, we, we read about in verse 3, there's a group of soldiers that are gathered together that come along with Judas and, and some of the religious leaders to arrest Jesus. Now, these soldiers, uh, now I'm not talking about the temple priests, which are spoken of here as well, but the soldiers specifically, they would have been Roman soldiers. Now, I'm going to give you some more detail on the numbers of soldiers here in a little bit, but in general, uh, we're in Judea, we're in ancient uh, Israel, and so at this time in history, it is a Roman province. So, stationed in Jerusalem, uh, we are told that in, in other places and other parts of history that there was at a minimum probably a legion of Roman soldiers in Jerusalem. Now, a legion of Roman soldiers would have been about 6,000, and there are different roles and there are different positions and officers, but there's about 6,000 uh, Roman soldiers throughout Judea, and many are stationed here in Jerusalem. Now, because they're far from the capital, they're far from Rome, they're in this province, and Judea has been known as a hostile province. Uh, the, The Jewish people have fought back and rebelled at different times, and so the Romans, they always want to make an example of anybody, of any hint that there may be an insurrectionist. In fact, when we get to the trial, that's going to be ultimately the point. Jesus is claiming that he is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is claiming that uh, he is Lord and not Caesar. And so for right or for wrong, we see that these Roman soldiers, they certainly abuse their power. We're told in verse 3 that they're carrying torches, that they're carrying weapons, and they go to peaceful Jesus to arrest him. They go to peaceful Jesus to make uh, uh, to make a point, to make a model out of him. You do not rebel against Rome, and if you do, you will be literally and utterly crushed in the most humiliating way possible. So, Rome itself, they abuse their power. Judas abuses his power for money. Rome, to keep the power that they already have. Now, Peter, we see that he abuses power as well. Peter, Jesus' best friend. Peter, the one who Jesus is going to build his church upon. And Peter's motive isn't necessarily a wrong motive. We read in the text that when they come and they're getting ready to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? He immediately withdraws his sword. Likely the sword that he has is a Roman gladius. Uh, A Roman gladius is a smaller sword. Uh, It's about, uh, oh man, I should know the answer to this. I believe the blade is about 20 inches, and the reason why I know this is because I've made one. Um, I did. For a class, I got an A. Uh, um, anyways, he pulls his sword. Now, a Roman gladius, if you could picture maybe gladiator uh, and the way that they wield that sword, for the most part, it's not a chopping weapon. You can, but the Roman gladius was built in such a way uh, that it's actually meant to stab. It can penetrate and pierce armor, and it could do a lot of damage, and that was the whole point of it. And we're told Peter... Uh, who is, again, the, the 
head, going to be the head of Christ's church, he pulls out the sword, and we're told he cuts off the ear uh, of one of the members that are there to arrest him. Now, if we look at that a little bit, and we look and see that if Peter is likely carrying a Roman gladius, again, it's not that he was, you know, trying to nick this guy. He was trying to stab him, and the guy likely may have got out of the way a little bit and only got the tip of his ear cut off. But Peter was trying to murder. He was trying to kill a guy. Peter should know better, should he not? What was his motive? Well, he wanted to protect his Lord. But what do we learn about Peter? We could have the right motives, but if we still do the wrong thing, we're abusing our power. We're, we're abusing the way that we're going about. It's not just that we would have the right motive. It's not just that we would have the right action, but we're called to have both the right action and the right motive. Peter, his motive, it was a good one. His motive, he wanted to use his power to protect his Lord, but he went about it in the wrong way and he missed the forest for the trees. Final character that is mentioned here in the Gospel of John, he'll come up again uh, in the book of Acts, and there's actually kind of this, you know, debate where, is this a place where Scripture uh, contradicts itself? Because in the book of Acts, we'll be told that Annas is the high priest uh, when Jesus went through his crucifixion. But if we know our history, if we've read the other Gospels, we know that the actual high priest at the time when Jesus was arrested is Caiaphas. So here's how this essentially works out. There were three kind of really powerful political families back in ancient times, back in ancient Judea, that essentially ruled the people as far as how religion went. Three really strong families, and the family that was in power at the time was the family of Annas. Now, earlier, when Jesus was a young child, Annas was the high priest. But in order to maintain power and assure that his family legacy would go on, Annas would work things in such a way that his sons after him would become high priests. And when his sons were no longer eligible, he would work things in such a way that Caiaphas, his son-in-law, would become the high priest. So again, Caiaphas, yes, he had the title, but in some ways he was kind of this puppet master to his father-in-law, Annas, who called the shots, who called the shots for the religious leaders back in the day. And so we see Annas and we see Caiaphas, and we look at the way everything else is going about, similar to the Roman soldiers, why do they, what they do what they do? How, how do they abuse their power? Or should, should I say, why do they abuse their power? Same reason, they want to maintain uh, the power and control that they have. Now, the Roman soldiers, I'm not going to say that what they're doing is right, but they maybe at least have somewhat of a noble motive, you know, for, for king and country. Uh, this Jesus, he claims to be the Messiah. He, he, he might raise up a force that would rebel against us. We must put him down. But not Annas and Caiaphas. We're told that they get it. We're told that they know that Jesus is innocent. But in order to maintain their power, in order to maintain their establishment and their rule over the people, specifically with their religious leadership, they are willing to kill and execute an innocent man. 
So can you see this? Can you see the abuse of power that, that's going on here in this text? You know, for money, for power, for protection, uh, and, there, and to keep power, there's even two characters that are willing to kill an innocent man that they may not lose the power that they have. Do you relate to any of these characters? Is there any person in this text when you hear about these abuses of power? Uh, do you relate to any of them? You see, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to reflect on our own heart. Do you desire power? Perhaps a promotion, perhaps recognition, perhaps a greater title. And if you do, you're not necessarily wrong. There are places in Scripture that talk about it being honorable to desire more power. But the question that we must ask ourselves if we do desire more power is this, why? Why do we desire more power? We see motives laid out here in this text, and we see how you could even have good motives. But ultimately, if you want to go about doing a bad thing, it's not right. So why do you want more power? If, uh, what is your heart's motivation? And then the other question I think we need to ask ourselves is, do we have power? Whether it be uh, in our relationship with our spouses, whether it be a relationship with our children, uh, a relationship with our friends, a relationship in work, but do you have power in relationships? And if you do, again, I ask the question that I asked earlier, how do you treat those below you? Again, whether it's somebody lower than you in the social pecking order, uh, whether it's somebody who must report to you at work, are you kind to them? Or, like the characters we just learned about, do you abuse your power? May we repent. May we repent for the ways that we abuse the power that God has given us. Because, make no mistake, all power is inherently given to us first and foremost by God. And may we repent of the, the bad desires that we have for power. May we pray and may we ask God that he would purify our motives, that he would make our hearts right. Because again, power in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it's how we use it and what we do with it. The four characters that we just looked at, we see they abuse their power. They have wrong actions and wrong motives, but not with Jesus. With Jesus, we see the proper use of power, and that's our second point. Uh, so, uh, again, I began saying, uh, I believe here in this text, uh, I think we see one of the most radical, one of the most awesome displays of Jesus' power. Uh, let me go and explain. So, first off, how does Jesus use his power, or should I say, what does he use his power for? He uses his power for the good of his people. We're going to see that here in a couple places. So I already set it up. Uh, we, have, uh, we have Judas, who's kind of leading uh, these Roman soldiers, leading, leading these temple guards, and they're going to approach Jesus. Now, I couldn't tell you why. I had read this text so many times, and it really was only a couple years ago, that my mind uh, began to make sense of verse 6. So, uh, let me explain. So not only do you have uh, this, these Roman soldiers, but we have that Greek word, uh, and it, we're told in English that there's a band of Roman soldiers. When I think that there's a band of soldiers, I think, okay, maybe there's 10 of them, maybe there's 20. 
But this is actually a very technical Greek word. Uh, it's the Greek word spira, and it is a military term, which stands for a cohort of soldiers, normally a tenth of a legion. So really quick, if we're just doing some simple math here, if a legion is 6,000 soldiers and a cohort, which is this Greek word that's being used here, is a tenth of a legion, technically this could be up to 600 Roman soldiers. Remember, they went above and out of their way. If they heard word of an insurrectionist, they're going to put it down with force and might so that nobody would question who's in charge. Rome is in charge. Now, commentators have gone and they've looked at, it doesn't have to be 600. Typically, this is how it, it, what it would be. But if they were understaffed for a lot of reasons, it may not be exactly 600. But we're in the ballpark anywhere of 300 to 600 heavily armed, heavily armored, uh, the most brutal fighting force in history up to this time, go to arrest one man, one man. And when they go and approach him, they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And how does he respond? A go I me. So in other words, he responds by saying, I am. And if we know our scripture, if we know the story, God himself names himself I am in the Old Testament. Uh, when, when Moses uh, is talking to Yahweh and he says, uh, when I'm questioned, uh, who should I say sent me to redeem my people to go, to go save them? Yahweh says, you tell him, I am sent you. I think in kind of modern day times, and I don't know, I haven't found stories of it really in church history, but I think it's really popular for people to, to describe having some sort of a, a vision or an encounter of God where they've like, oh yeah, I've, I've died and went to heaven for a half an hour and there was grandma and Jesus and it was really fun. Uh, and I read stories about this all the time and people talk about it like um, it's meeting your favorite character at Disneyland. But if we look at the Old Testament, when people have a divine encounter, it's horrifying, it's terrifying. Prophets, uh, kings, priests, people who know and love God, when they encounter God, they can't stay on their feet. They literally fall to their feet. And here in this moment, again, the most powerful men in the world, the most armored men in the world, the greatest military might, they come and they say, I'm looking for Jesus. And he only utters a hint, a glimpse, a whisper, if I'm imagining this, of his name. And the most powerful men in the world can't keep their feet. Verse 6. Verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am they drew back and fell to the ground. You see, we get this display of his power just at simply naming who he is. I think what we see in this text is Jesus is showing everybody who is present who's actually in charge. We just sang the song, uh, Rock of Ages, and I love the chorus, Rock of Ages, no one takes your life Yet you die that I might live, costly grace you freely give. Nobody has power over the Son of God. 
Nobody can tell him what to do or how to do it. And he makes it clear by at the bare whisper of his name, again, the most powerful men in the world lose their feet. They cannot remain standing. Yet, Jesus himself promises, and he says it, I will drink the cup that the Father has given me. And so, Jesus, we read in verse 9, why does he do this? Why does the Son of God, why does the agent of, of creation allow himself to be victimized, to be abused by his creation? Verse 9, so that I shouldn't lose even one that the Father has given me. And then also verses 11 and 14, because he promises that he will be obedient to his Father, being obedient even to the point of going to death on the cross. There's a pastor. Uh, I, I don't know if pastor is actually the right name for him. Evangelist is probably a better name for him. His name is Ray Comfort. And uh, he actually, my hometown where I grew up, he does a lot of his evangelism on the pier in Huntington Beach, California, Surf City, USA. And he goes there, and I'm not going to necessarily say it's my favorite style uh, of evangelism because he is pretty uh, in your face and pretty aggressive. But nonetheless, he's evangelizing people, and there's lots of videos out there on this and um, lots of videos of people repenting and, and turning their life to God. But not everyone. Uh, sometimes people get really, really angry. And I just saw a video this week of a young man debating Ray Comfort as he is trying to evangelize him and share the good news of Jesus with him. And this man is adamantly opposed that uh, there can't be a God. And he begins to say, if there's a God, he would be a God of justice. But I look at the Bible and I see God command these things, and there's no way that the God in the Bible could be a God of justice. And Ray Comfort turns around and looks at him and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, you want a God of justice, but when you read about a God carrying out justice, you say there's no way that he can be God? Well, yeah, yeah, because I want a God of mercy. And then he goes, well, what do you want? Do you want mercy or do you want justice? And ultimately, the young man couldn't make up his mind. Really, what it came down to is he wanted to give mercy to who he wanted to give mercy, and he wanted to give justice to he who he wanted to give justice. And at the end of the day, uh, despite our best efforts at trying to gain power, despite our best efforts at trying to play God by having thoughts in our head and in our hearts on who deserves judgment and who deserves mercy and peace, we'll find that we are not up to the task. The more power we get, history shows us that more often than not, we don't use it responsibly. But Jesus does is he makes sure that every single person that the Father gives him uh, is safe. In this particular text, that means his 12 disciples, 11 disciples at this point in time, they get away. They won't go and face the justice uh, from the Roman army. But Jesus, the one who doesn't deserve it, he will. Because Jesus doesn't use his power uh, the way that he could. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we are told that at any given moment, he could have called down legions, not singular but plural, legions of angels to come and eradicate those who are using their power to abuse him. But he doesn't. Like a sheep who is silent, he goes to the cross willingly goes to the cross willingly so that he wouldn't have to lose even one, even you, 
or me or I, uh, those of us that are here today, one whom the Father has given him. You see, on the cross, Jesus doesn't exercise his power, but he withholds using his power so that you and I may be pardoned of our sin. At the cross, he goes and he drinks the cup of the Father's wrath so that you and I may not have to for the ways that we have abused the power God has given us in our lives. And again, I said this earlier, but what does the proper use of power look like? It looks like using your power for the good of others, and that's exactly what Jesus does. And in one of the other Gospels, we are told that even as he is being abused and torn apart and killed for the sins of others, how does he use his power? He says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Matthew 28, uh, after the resurrection, after Jesus would drink the full cup of God's wrath, after he would die and after he would come back to life, he appears again to his disciples and he tells them, all power and authority has been given unto me. I will not leave you and I will not depart you. So here's a couple things that that means for us today. Earlier, we talked about the ways that we abuse power, but in reality, I believe every single one of us in some way, shape, or form have been abused by those who have power, whether it's somebody who is called to love you who doesn't, whether it's somebody who's been cruel and mean to you and it doesn't make sense and you don't get why. Here's one of the things that we get to take encouragement and comfort over in this text. Jesus has all power and authority. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow. Have you been abused by those who have power? The good news is this. One day, every single person, every single person will be held accountable for the power that they have used, for right and for wrong. For those who are followers of Jesus, again, the wrath that we deserve was poured out on his Son. For those of us that haven't, we can be assured we do have a God who is a God of justice, and he will have his justice one way or another. But here's the other thing that we get to learn. Because Jesus does have all power and authority, we have somebody that we can go to. We have a leader that we can truly follow. We have a leader that we can trust. Again, because so often, whether it be politicians or whether it be corporate CEOs or, or God forbid, in the relationships that we experience, we see this abuse of power, but not so with Jesus. He uses his power for you. He uses his power for me. He uses his power for the good of his people. And this is what ultimately brings him glory. So if you are struggling, if you are stumbling, if you are trying to understand what is my purpose, who should I follow, who can I go to, Jesus is worthy of following. He doesn't use his power for evil. He uses his power for good. He is somebody that we can willingly submit to because he is good. Jesus always uses his power for good. May we repent of the ways that we have abused power, and may we look to Jesus and follow after him in the proper use of power, and may we trust him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that uh, 